Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Just to remind us why I'm taking this aside from our expository preaching through Romans to establish the role of faith in our salvation. Romans chapter 10. Because most of us come from an Arminian background where we worshiped at the altar of the free will of man, where we participated in all the gimmicks that modern Christianity has invented for their decisional regeneration, I need to take this extra time to remind us all about what the Bible says of faith so that we can come back and then proceed in a more positive way through these verses rather than having to to spend so much time teaching what they don't mean since we've heard them abused so many times. Romans chapter 10, I'll read verses 9 through 13. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. These five verses have been so abused by Arminians and worshipers of free will that it's hard for anyone to sort them out and understand where they fit in the overall scheme of salvation taught in the New Testament by Paul and the other apostles. Let's turn in our Bibles back to John chapter 5, which is one of the last texts we referred to last Sunday, and remind ourselves of a person hearing the gospel and believing it, there are certain things said about him. And we looked at a number of these verses last Sunday in what I called the second sermon of last Sunday, the grammar of salvation taught in the Bible. John chapter 5 and verse 24, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is an absolutely true statement of doctrine. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. In this verse, there are five verbs. He that heareth, that's a present tense verb. That's someone hearing the gospel in the present. And believeth on him that sent me, that's present tense. So we have a person hearing the gospel and believing the gospel about Jesus Christ in the present tense. Hath everlasting life. Hath means to be in possession of a thing. So the person that's hearing and believing in the present, in the present, is already a possessor of everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation. So there is a future tense of salvation. He that is hearing in the present and believing in the present, while he possesses eternal life in the present, is going to stand before God in the great day of judgment in the future, and he shall not come into condemnation in that future day. 
but is passed from death unto life. That's what's called the perfect present tense, because is passed, or has been passed, are present tense verbs, meaning, present perfect tense verbs, meaning that the action was perfected in the past, and it's still true in the present. To, for it to say of this person, this individual that's hearing and believing, he is past. He, it's not that he shall be past. It's not that he is passing. It's that he is past. The action was passed in the past. And it's still true in the present. That is a present perfect tense of a verb. So, we have a person in the present hearing the gospel and believing the gospel, and we have three different verb tenses applied to his salvation. Before he heard and believed, he was born again, because that's when he was passed from death unto life. And we know that because a person dead in trespasses and sins cannot hear the gospel, neither can he believe the gospel. But the person hearing and believing, because he was already passed from death unto life, is in possession of eternal life in the present, half everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation in the future when he stands before God. That is what we believe about hearing and believing and its position where it fits. It comes after regeneration, and it comes before as an evidence of the fact that we're going to be judged righteous when we stand before God by our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Does that mean that is when you will get regenerated? It can't mean that. John 5.24 tells us that it can't mean that. And for about a thousand other proofs, we know that it can't mean that. Because a person dead in trespasses and sins will not hear and believe the gospel and cannot hear and believe the gospel. The Bible teaches us that. However, there is a salvation yet that's very important, and that's the final phase of salvation or our glorification. And how do we know if we're going to be glorified when we stand before God and give an account of our lives? Well, by hearing and believing, faith is the evidence of things not seen yet. We're going to be judged righteous before God through the Lord Jesus Christ because we hear and believe. Hear and believe is the evidence that we're saved. It's the evidence that we were born again before we heard and believed, and it is the evidence that in the great day of judgment, we shall not come into condemnation. And so there in one verse with five verb tenses, don't you wish that uh, school, and the only way you can make this happen is to go to a very special Christian school or to homeschool your children so that you can show them verbs from the Bible. So they can learn that it's not the order of verbs in a sentence, it's the tense of the verbs that counts. Let's come back to Romans chapter 10 and look at those words again. I'm not going to explain them yet. They should be falling into place with last Sunday's sermons and today's sermons. Because I'll, res- I'll resume our expository preaching through Romans phrase by phrase when we finish this study. But looking at those words... In 9 through 13, I just explained them using John 5, 24. But let's remember that we've already covered some ground in Romans. So I'm going to show you a Romans road that the world doesn't like. Because this Romans road doesn't end up at the altar of free will. See, the the Christian world worships at the altar of free will. They think they're all like Adam before he sinned. 
and that they all have the power to believe on Jesus and get themselves saved. That God is just trying with all His power and all His love, and He's just a begging and a pleading, trying to get the human race saved, and the vast majority are going to end up in hell because He's a total failure. The only ones that make it to heaven are the ones that got them there by themselves. Because they worked up the faith to believe on Jesus. And that's taking faith entirely out of its proper role and sticking it where it does not belong. But there's a Romans road. Look at Romans chapter 3. And I can't spend time here because we have ground to cover. And we briefly mentioned this last Lord's Day as well in the first service. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 19. Describe the state of man apart from the grace of God. And it says that they are all under sin in verse 9. It says in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. It says in verse 11, there is none that understandeth. Now, how many people are going to believe on Jesus Christ to save them when there's not a single one that understands? There is none that seeketh after God. How many are going to believe on Jesus Christ when there's not a single one seeking after God? God looked down upon the children of men. Psalm 14 tells us that He did look upon our race. And what did He find? It's described right here. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And that's a quotation from Psalm 14. And so the Romans road opens up right here. And we could just keep reading right down through those verses. It says in verse 18, There is no fear of God before their eyes. If there's no fear of God before a natural man's eyes, what's going to cause him to humble himself and to repent and to believe on the Son of God? Nothing. There's nothing in him that would ever cause him to do it, so not a single person would ever do it. So that's where we start with our Romans road. We need someone outside ourselves to make the decision for us. And blessed be God, He did it. So now let's go to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. And while it took us many weeks to get through Romans 9, I've only got a few minutes, or a couple minutes. So very briefly, Romans chapter 9, verse... What do we want to pick? Verse 15. For He saith to Moses, and this is a quotation out of the Old Testament, here's God speaking, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Whom does God show mercy to and whom does God love? There's four wills in verse 15 of Romans 9, and they're all the will of God. I will, I will, I will, I will. So then, verse 16, we may draw a conclusion. So then, it is not of him that willeth. That's why we hate the altar of free will and we'll tear it down just like Gideon tore down the altar of Baal in his community. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The Apostle Paul didn't add one name to the book of life. The Apostle Paul did not get one soul from hell to heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior alone. The Apostle Paul said, I endure all things for the elect's sake. He labored to show the elect what Jesus Christ had done for them. And so here's the first phase of salvation. It's God's choice of men. It's His choice to show mercy and compassion upon them. It has nothing to do with their choice. It has nothing to do with their efforts, because it's not of Him that willeth, nor of Him that runneth. If we keep on reading, we come to verse 
22, where it says, What if God, willing to show His wrath... This is God's will. God is willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. See, he's being described as a potter here, because I've skipped verses, and you know that. It says that he's a potter, and we're the clay. And he can make vessels of honor. That's a beautiful thing that you put in the house that's decorative. You put it on the mantle. Or he can make vessels of dishonor, and that could be the porcelain pony that you have out back in the outhouse. But he makes both out of the same substance. And so it says here in verse 22, what if God, willing to make vessels of wrath, that is, He's going to make some from the clay of humanity that He's going to show His wrath on. And He's willing to do that. And He chooses to do that. Fitted to destruction. They were designed to be destroyed. Because of their sins, but it's God's choice. Then verse 23 shows a different kind of vessel. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. So out of the, the clay of humanity, he makes vessels of wrath that he's going to pour his wrath on because he wants to show his wrath. He wants the, the universe to know what he thinks of sin. The devil and his angels is going to be in that category as well. No one ever feels sorry for them. They only feel sorry for humanity and think that God's unfair is because they love themselves so much they can't get over themselves. But they never feel sorry for the devil. It's amazing. You can watch people's selfishness come flying up in their face as soon as you start preaching election to them. Just like they tried to kill the Lord Jesus in Luke 4 when he came to his hometown synagogue for the first time, read in the scriptures and read so well, and explained that that scripture was fulfilled that day in their midst by him reading it. And it says they all wondered at the gracious words which he spoke unto them. And then he mentions election by two examples from the Old Testament, that of all the lepers in Israel, God only healed a Syrian named Naaman. Of all the widows in Israel, God only provided for a widow of Zarephath. And as soon as he said that, they led him to a brow of a hill to kill him. Why? Because those envious, wicked, selfish men expected him to come into their city and to perform all the miracles that he had performed elsewhere. And he said, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and left. Romans 9, verse 24, Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Notice, it says, of the Jews. So the election includes some Jews, and of the Gentiles. God's election includes some Gentiles. Praise be to God, if we didn't have that last clause of verse 24, you and I would be cut out because we're Gentiles. Well, this is the Romans' road. So there's the eternal phase of salvation. There's God's choice of who's going to be saved. Here's God's choice of who's going to have the mercy of God upon them. Now he, he executed and, and paid the price for it through Jesus Christ. So we come to Romans 5. We're on the Romans' road. We started in chapter 3, we go to chapter 9, because that's the eternal phase of salvation. And now we come to the legal phase of salvation, because a price had to be paid. We're all sinners. The Apostle Paul was a sinner. Who's going to pay the legal price for God to choose to show mercy upon the Apostle Paul and to show compassion? God cannot, and God will not, ever acquit or clear guilty sinners. He cannot. Nahum 1 and 3. Exodus 34 and 7. He can't. 
The sin must be paid for. So we have to have a legal substitute. And here we have them. Oh, praise God for the second Adam. Beginning at verse 12, we're told about the first Adam. Do you know why you die? You die because of Adam's sin. You are held accountable in the legal forensic terms of heaven by Adam eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 12 says that, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so, in this way, death passed upon all men. It then goes on to describe those that never sinned like Adam sinned. It didn't matter. They were all held guilty for Adam's sin. In verses 12 through 14, that is our first father. That is the first Adam, and what he did for us legally, he condemned us. And so we all die. Let an evolutionist tell us why we all die. I'll tell you why we die. Because there was once a first father in in the Garden of Eden that God made a covenant with for the whole human race. And he sinned. And so we have in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Do you see that? The one Adam sinned and many were made sinners by his singular disobedience. This is the doctrine of representation. This is the doctrine of federal headship. This is the doctrine that in the first half of verse 19, the one man is Adam in the Garden of Eden. He disobeyed God's single commandment. And as a consequence, everyone in Adam is a sinner. Everyone in Adam is condemned. Everyone in Adam is going to die. But we thank God for the second half of verse 19 and the second half of verse 18 and the second half of verse 17 and the second half of verse 16. Yep, and the second half of verse 15 because they all describe the second Adam. Verse 19, So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. How are we made righteous? By us obeying the gospel and believing? Not a chance. We are made righteous by the singular obedience of the second Adam the Lord Jesus Christ. And in just the way we were made sinners by Adam, totally disconnected from him except in the counsel of God, so are the elect made righteous, totally separated from the work itself because Jesus did it by himself on the cross of Calvary. Verse 19. So we're in Romans Road. We've gone chapter 3. We've gone chapter 9. We've gone chapter 5. We're here in chapter 5 for the legal phase of salvation, of making us righteous in the sight of God. Then we come over to chapter 8 because we need the vital phase of salvation. The vital phase of salvation is when we have the principle of life put in us. God chose us to eternal salvation. Jesus Christ paid for that and said it is finished. And yet we're still dead in trespasses and sins. And by nature, by nature we are the children of wrath. Remember those vessels of wrath? By our nature, when we're born the first time to our parents, we're no different than all those children or vessels of wrath that God is going to judge for eternity. So we need a change to our nature. And that's when we're born again. The other word for born again in the Bible is to be regenerated. Another word for regeneration, which means to generate the second time. Your earthly parents generated you the first time, but God must generate you the second time. It's to be quickened, as Ephesians chapter 2 describes it, because He gives you life. We're spiritually dead, inherited from Adam, and He gives us life. How's that described in Romans? Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It's the Spirit of God in a man that makes him a son. Verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, 
But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That verb receive there is entirely passive. You weren't looking and begging and seeking the Holy Spirit. You were living in sin until the day that the Holy Spirit was placed inside you that opened your heart and you were born again. John chapter 3, Jesus described being born again like the way the wind blows. The wind doesn't blow where you want it to blow. It never has and it never will. The wind blows wherever God wants it to blow. And the Bible says in John 3, 8, So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Because being born again, according to John 1, 13, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we hate free will. We understand that the only free will in the universe is God's will, and God has exercised that will for us. So, God chose us in chapter 9. Jesus Christ died for us and obeyed for us in chapter 5. The Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts in chapter 8, which causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And only then can Romans 10, verses 9 through 13 help us. Only then can we hear it, and we have a new nature that says, I love that message. I love that Savior. I'll do anything to follow Him. With Saul of Tarsus, we say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Who made the difference? Thy people shall be made willing in the day of thy power. Psalm 110 and that third verse. Now, brethren, let's see in a few minutes if we can cover some new ground. Why did Paul write things the way he did in Romans 10 that the Arminians would abuse so badly? Well, why did Paul write that you can fall from grace in Galatians 5.4, which so many abuse so badly? can't fall from grace. You can only fall from the right understanding or doctrine of grace, which the Galatians had done by including circumcision in their salvation and the works of the law instead of relying only on Jesus Christ. But it says, fall from grace and there go whole denominations like the Church of Christ and the Worldwide Church of God and others and say, eh, you can lose your salvation, you know, ten times a day. You just better be getting saved all the time. And you better make sure the last time you get saved, you get saved right before your last breath, before you sin again. Because if you sin one more time after that last time you got saved, you're lost forever. How did all that happen? Why do so many believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved? Why in the world did did, did Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Why did Jesus say, Except a man be born of water? Oh, there they go. 95% of professing Christians think that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. You say, well, why did God write his word that way? To trip up everyone that doesn't approach it the right way. Just like he spoke in parables. Because he told his apostles when they came and complained to him, why are you speaking in parables? Don't you know the people can't understand you? He said, I don't want them to understand. I speak to them in parables so that they will not understand, so I will not have to convert them or heal them. That's Matthew 13, 10 through 17. But he said, I will explain it to you because I do want you to understand. And that's what he's done to us this morning. All things, 
Every word of wisdom in the Bible is plain to him that understandeth, and God's given us understanding. Not of every single thing in his Bible, but we're still praying for him to show us everything in his word. Right. Why, why did he write this way in Romans 10, 9 through 13? Because Paul had a number one enemy throughout all the pages of the New Testament, and it was Jewish legalism. Right. Jewish legalism was that teachers would come out of Jerusalem and infect the Gentile churches, as you read last evening in your preparation in Acts 15, and tell them that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to go to heaven. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, and Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, but they were so, they were so jealous for their national tradition and the law of Moses that they were trying to mix the two. Paul had to deal with it his entire ministry. The whole book of Galatians is about it. A good chunk of Romans. Hebrews is about it in a different respect. Philippians chapter 3 is about it. He has to deal with it constantly. Remember where we got verses 9 through 13. We got it out of a context. Remember what he said in verse 5 of Romans 10. Verse 5. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Now, he has, he has just shown that if you want to go back to the law of Moses, the only way you can get to heaven is to keep every commandment that Moses gave, some 700 of them. But verse 4 said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. When a person believes that Jesus Christ lived the law perfectly and then died as a substitute, by the curse of the law, which was to hang on a tree, the law is over. You don't have to keep it to be saved. Jesus Christ did the saving. See, the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we would appreciate someone who did all the work for us in saving us. Thank you, Lord. That is why he's writing the way he is right here because he's contrasting the works of the law with faith. Now, when you go elsewhere in Paul's writings, you'll find that he adds a whole lot to faith you'll find that he tells us where faith came from, that God had to work it in us before we could work it out. He tells us all those things, but here in Romans, he doesn't bother with it because he knows, he's told you, you are supposed to compare Scripture with Scripture in 1 Corinthians 2.13 to understand what the Bible says. That's why he uses language. He's, he never met an Arminian. He never met anyone falling down at the altar of free will, so he doesn't write in a guarded way by using faith in a way that would cut off the Arminians. He lets them have their rope to hang themselves, just like the Bible uses baptism in certain places for men to hang themselves with baptismal regeneration. So that's why we have it. We're told right here that there's a conflict going on in doctrine. There's the doctrine of those that think they can be justified by Moses' law, and there's those that see Christ having finished it, and it's verses 4 and 5. And that's why he just mentions faith without here going into chapter 9 for election, chapter 5 for legal salvation, chapter 8 for vital salvation, because he expects us to go find it, since we had to read it to get to chapter 10. Now that's deep, isn't it? that you had to read it before you got to 10, so that by the time you get to chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, you should know where it fits in. I'm not going to say any more on that. That is a study by itself, and anyone that hears this sermon through the Internet should make a study 
starting in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, John chapter 8, and other places, and find out how pervasive Jewish legalism was. Paul had to fight it everywhere, and that's why you read about that great council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where the apostles and elders and brethren came together to settle the issue, what do Gentiles have to keep from the law of Moses? And that's when Peter said, listen, our fathers nor we could bear that yoke. We believe that they're going to be saved, that we're going to be saved just as they are by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What about Abraham? In brief, I've preached this before, and by the grace of God, in the next couple of days, I'll unleash a massive document on our website about the case of Abraham, because Abraham is used so extensively as the example of salvation. And the Apostle Paul quoted from one place, Genesis 15, 6. In Genesis chapter 15, God said to Abraham, come outside. Now, can you count the stars? And Abraham couldn't count the stars, there were too many to count. And God told him, so shall thy seed be. Your seed is going to be that numerous. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, Paul goes back to Genesis 15, 6 and just pulls that out over and over and over and over in Galatians chapter 4, and in, I mean, Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapters 2 and 3. Oh, yes. Over and over, showing the Jews that keeping the law of Moses is not the way of salvation. Trying to show them from their own national tradition and from their own scriptures. That true justification and being righteous before God was not by keeping the law of Moses. And the reason Abraham is so popular is because the Jews looked at him as the greatest Hebrew there ever was. He was the father of the nation. He was the friend of God. So Paul just says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let's use their number one pick. Let's use their favorite saved saint from the Old Testament, Abraham. And so then he goes and shows that Abraham was declared to be righteous 430 years before the law of Moses. The actual number is used in Galatians chapter 3. God declared Abraham righteous 430 years before Moses came down with those two tablets from Mount Sinai. Well, that blows out the law of Moses. Look at our father Abraham. God declared him righteous without the law of Moses. Then they'll say, but what about circumcision? And so in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul reasons, when was Abraham circumcised? The faithful Jew raises his hand quickly and says, Genesis chapter 17. Yes, Paul says, but I just quoted from Genesis chapter 15 that God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15 when he was uncircumcised. So let's hit the silver lever for circumcision. And is that, is that beautiful reasoning? This is the gospel made plain. And it's the gospel made powerful. Because the apostle Paul was a master reasoner with those Jews. And so he condemns Jewish legalism by showing that Abraham, their greatest saint, was declared righteous by God 430 years before the law and a good number of years before he was circumcised. Now, What we understand about what happened in Genesis 15 and verse 6 is nothing happened as far as changing Abraham's position before God. Abraham was already one of God's chosen people. 
He was already, his sins were already paid for in the purpose of God by his covenant. He was already born again in his nature. He wouldn't have been worshiping God for many years coming up to Genesis 15. I just want to, I just want to quickly run through a little timeline of Abraham's life, if you'll allow me. Abraham was 75 years old when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's over there worshiping pagan gods. The Bible tells us that in Joshua chapter 24 and other places. He's worshiping idols, and all of a sudden, God says, you're my man, and I want you to pack your family up and your domestic household. And it was, it was a pretty large household. And get yourself out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I'll tell you 500, three or 400 miles of where you're supposed to go, and I don't know where we're going to finish up, but would you just start moving? Now, that takes a special man. But you know what? Hebrews 11 tells us he was that special man. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. What a man of faith. Now, that's way before Genesis 15. This is Genesis chapter 11. And Genesis chapter 12, at 75 years of age, at 80 years of age, Abram walked with God. The Bible tells us he worshiped God. He built altars. God appeared to him. God protected him. He worshiped God acceptably. His worship was approved by God. He went and took on four kings from Mesopotamia with 318 trained household servants and a few Confederate friends from Canaan. Won the victory, brought back Lot and his family and all that he had and the king of Sodom. He met with Melchizedek and the priest of the Most High God blessed Abram. Now I want to ask you, was the priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's an abbreviation in those days for the city of Jerusalem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the type and shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, he blessed Abraham. Was Abraham dead in trespasses and sins when he got a blessing from Melchizedek? Not on your life. Was Abraham already a righteous man and justified before God for the priest of the Most High God to bless him? Absolutely. Well, what happened in Genesis 15 then? A little event in the life of Abraham that God singled out to put in the pages of Scripture so that Paul would have something to argue from to show the Jewish legalists that they didn't know what they were talking about. That's all that Nothing changed. James is going to tell us when something did change, and it wasn't in chapter 15. And it really didn't change. It was just another type event. Genesis, Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham, you take your son that you love, your only begotten son, take him up on Mount Moriah and kill him and burn him as a burnt sacrifice. And Abraham goes through all the motions, ties his son on the altar. Oh, what an ex- We can't go there. It'll take too long, but what a wonderful story. You know, the poor son says, Dad... I see, the, I see the wood that I'm carrying. I see the fire in your hand. Where's the sacrifice? Isaac was starting to put two and two together. And do you know what it meant? I'm not going to graduate from high school. That's what it meant. Abraham raised his hand to slay his son. And God called it of heaven and said, Now I know that you fear me. Come on. Are you trying to tell me that Abraham had never feared God before? He'd feared him since he was 75 years old. And when was this event happening? Oh, at about 115 years of age. So for 40 years, he's walked with God and feared God. And now God says, now I know that you fear me because you're willing to give up your son. And you know what? He does that with every single one of us. What are we, gonna, what are we willing to give up to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And then he can say from heaven, now I know 
that you fear me. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. And a man's foes will be they of his own household. That's how he finds out who we love the most. Because Jesus said, if you love father or mother more than me, if you love wife or brother more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Same thing. When, when we believe the gospel... And the gospel says, well, that's the evidence of being born again, and that's the evidence that you're not going to come into condemnation when you stand before God. But then we move to the next step of discipleship, and we're willing to give up children, we're willing to give up friends in this world. Nothing changes in our standing before God. It's just that now we have more evidence that we're God's saved elect. That's why in 2 Peter chapter 1 it says, Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and knowledge patience, and patience godliness, and godliness temperance, and temperance brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness charity. It lists eight things. And it says, if you do these things, ye shall never fall, and you'll make your calling and election sure. Everybody wants, they should want to know, how do I know I'm one of God's elect? Well, start with faith and add seven more things, and you you can know that you're God's elect. Look at James chapter 2. I can't say more about Abraham, although there is sermons worth to be said. James chapter 2. These poor Calvinists out there that Read Martin Luther and other sacramentalist Catholics that whitewashed themselves to look like Christians and re- weren't really. I mean, Martin Luther, he never gave up infant, re- infant baptism, regeneration. He never gave up the real presence of Jesus Christ in his sacrament of communion. He believed in persecuting Baptists and real Christians. I mean, he was, he was so messed up about the words, the just shall live by faith. You know, I resent having been taught that, not the, not those that did it because they didn't know what they were doing, but I resent being taught that Martin Luther was a hero for Baptist children because Martin Luther hated Baptists, and he persecuted them. He called the peasants to war against them to try to eradicate them from Germany because he wanted a state church named after himself, and Baptists just don't like churches named after men. The only man that we'll ever get associated with is John the Baptist because... Jesus called him a Baptist, right. called him the Baptist, and he gave him a last name of John Baptist because Jesus was a Baptist. That's why he went to a Baptist preacher to get baptized. That shouldn't be hard for anyone to figure out. But Martin Luther got so distorted with the words, the just shall live by faith, that he hated the book of James. Just go home, punch in a Google search box, Martin Luther, James, and you'll have some fun reading and what he thought of that epistle, that epistle of straw. He, he questioned its canonicity that didn't belong in the Bible. Do you know why? Because of what I'm about to read to you. Right. James chapter 2 and verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man like Martin Luther say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? I added a couple of words for your understanding of the sense. James 2.14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? That's a rhetorical question. No. Faith is not enough. Boy, that sounds contradictory to Paul. Ah, because you're forgetting why Paul wrote the way he did. When Paul said that a man is not saved by works, he's meaning the works of Moses' law. When James says you better have some works... He doesn't mean the works of Moses' law to get justified. He means the good works of the New Testament to prove your faith is real. Verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, here's a person starving in the church. They don't have anything to wear and they don't have anything to eat. And one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, 
notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? It's hard for you to even imagine such a ridiculous thing ever happening, but a person starving to death and a person's naked and totally destitute, and you say, be warmed and filled. Bye-bye. What doth it profit? Zero. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Believing on Jesus and just doing that is the same thing. And yet so many ministers today are going are to say, do you want to get born again today? Do you want to pass from death into life today? Do you want to know that if you went out of here and were hit by an automobile that you'd go straight into heaven? Do you want to get your name written in the book of life today? Then just believe on Jesus. That's not found anywhere in the Bible. When you take the Bible, you've got to include James chapter 2 right here. Verse 20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And so on. We come down to Abraham. It says in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now I thought Paul said he was justified by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. But verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. See, James looks at Genesis 22. Paul looked at Genesis 15. Neither of them changed the legal standing of Abraham in heaven before God. I wish that I could give you all a frontal lobotomy. But I'm going to trust that we're doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit and His written word. Abraham did not change in Genesis 15, and Abraham didn't change in Genesis 22. But in both places it is said that he was justified. What does it mean to be justified? For God to declare that you are righteous. That your sins have been paid for and that you're clothed in the perfect righteousness of God. His believing and his offering of Isaac were only evidences of justification. He didn't change. The only change that had taken place for Abraham was a change that God had made by choosing him in Christ before the world began purposing to send his son, known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world, known that he was going to send his son to pay for the sins of Abraham, though the sacrifice would come after the life of the one that needed to be paid for. No problem to God. He can declare those things which be not as though they were. He is not bound by verb tenses because his purpose to do something is so absolutely inviolate, sure. Verse 22, seest thou, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Don't you see that? Faith and works together are what show a man righteous in the fullest sense of the word. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God that was imputed to him for righteousness. James is telling us Genesis 22 is more important and more complete than Genesis 6. And he was called the friend of God. Look at the conclusion of doctrine in verse 24. Ye see then, that's a conclusion, ye see then, how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. We do not earn our way to heaven by our good works. We just show that we're on our way to heaven by our good works. Because our good works show God's work in us first. Praise His holy name. Then it goes on to say that Rahab was justified the same way. If you're going to say that Abraham got justified by believing God's promise, then you've got to believe that a prostitute can get justified and go to heaven by lying to city council. And the sheriff when he came to the door. Because that's what it says right here. Verse 25. Likewise also, in the very same way of Abraham, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? When she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. She took in the two spies, she hid them, 
And she sent them one way, and she told city council and the sheriff, they went that way. And if you go fast, you might be able to catch them. Bye-bye, guys. You say, that's a horrible story. Oh, you need to humble yourself before the Word of God. That great woman, the city walls of Jericho fell flat, and one house was standing there. And if you looked closely through your binoculars, there was a red thread hanging from a window. Because she was a believer. What made her a believer? Thy people shall be made willing in the day of thy power. What in the world took one family of the city of Jericho and made her a believer when the rest said, we're going to stay in here? And even though the Jordan River was dried up and heaped up on both sides, and though they came through the Red Sea on their way here, we're going to just stay safe in here. What made the difference? God did. And do you know where Rahab is? She's in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Somebody will say, well, that's the only place in the Bible where it says that we're justified by works or that we're saved by works. That's the only place, and I, I sort of understand Martin Luther not liking that epistle because it just, it just seems to grate against everything else of the New Testament. Really? Okay, let's go to Second Peter chapter 1. Let's quickly, three passages, and we close for our break and our brunch. Oh, Lord, thank you for feeding our souls with the Lord Jesus Christ. Never, cause, never let us remember the council at Jerusalem and how we Gentiles were brought in and that we are making up the tabernacle of David in these latter days by our conversions to the gospel of thy Son. Let us never forget Psalm 110, And the Lord said unto my Lord, And let us never forget the role that faith plays. Thank you, O Lord, for working faith in us. Second Peter chapter 1, you ought to ask the question, how can I know that I'm God's elect? Verse 5, beside this, giving all diligence. How important should this be to you? Giving all diligence. All diligence. Give it. This should be a pursuit of your life. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you, these good works... And abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, don't be like that last guy that I just read about in verse 9. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Yes, the Bible says, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. You will not earn your way to heaven by these things. If you were to be perfect in all eight things, you will never get your name written in the book of life. But by doing these things and abounding in them, it shows the character of a righteous man that God made righteous by His choice, that Christ died for, and that the Holy Spirit has already regenerated. And if you're doing those things, you can stand before God and know that your calling and election is sure. And verse 11 goes on to say, For so, in this way, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want an abundant entrance into heaven, then the Bible tells you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and then add to that faith these other seven things in this passage, and you'll never fall. Come over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, about that Thessalonian church that you read about last evening also in your preparation for today's worship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul taught the same thing that James taught in James chapter 2 about the important role of works. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. The church at Thessalonica was a great church. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now watch. Remembering without ceasing. We never forget this. Your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. We are studying the role of faith in salvation. Well, where does faith fit in? Does it get a person elected? No, it is the evidence of election. Because Paul said in verse 4, I know that you Thessalonians are elect because of your faith. No, because of the work of faith. Their faith changed their lives. Their faith caused them to give up friends. Their faith caused them to change their music. Their faith caused them to leave the temple and come to worship in a little assembly of saints. The work of faith. The labor of love. It wasn't enough to sing, oh, how I love Jesus. That doesn't prove anything. It's the labor of love for the people of God. Are you willing to serve others sacrificially? That's the labor of love and that's the evidence of election and the patience of hope. Patience in the Bible is not waiting. Patience in the Bible in a, in a description like this is cheerfully enduring negative circumstances. And they cheerfully endured negative circumstances, which in this church was severe persecution out of their hope of heaven. See, a person can say, oh, yes, I want to go to heaven when I die. So what? Everybody does. Let's go take a survey downtown. I think we can break the 90 percentile. Let's just walk up to people and say, you want to go to heaven when you die? Oh, yeah. what do you think I want to do, go to hell? You know, that's what they would say. But you know, the only way that you can show that you're one of God's elect is to have patience of hope. Your hope is just not saying, well, I hope I'm going to get there. Your hope is your expectation and waiting for heaven, according to Romans chapter 8. And it causes you to cheerfully endure persecution in this life. So look at what Paul said. Now this is the same man that said, that if thou shalt believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that if thou shalt believe in thine heart the Lord Jesus, and shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10, I just corrupted a little bit, 9 through 13. This is the same man. Look what he said right here. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, that it was a work of faith, not just bare believing and confessing, and that it was a labor of love, not just bare love of Christ or others, and that it was patience of hope. It was hope of heaven that resulted in a changed life of enduring persecution. One more, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I told you three. I'll try to stick to it. We, look, we looked at Second Peter chapter 1 so that Peter wrote just like James and then we went to First Thessalonians chapter 1 and Paul wrote just like James and here we come to Galatians 5 and we'll get Paul again so that we have two witnesses that Paul knew that there was more than just faith. Right. And remember, whether it's faith or the works that are added to faith, they all come after being born again, right. which comes after being justified by Christ on the cross when he said it is finished, which comes after God choosing us in Christ before the world began. But all of it comes in front of being judged righteous in the great day of judgment so that we have these different tenses of salvation. And our hearing and believing in the present comes after these and in front of the big one. Right. So it uses the future tense. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
person that calls upon the name of the Lord in sincerity is going to be saved in that great day. But calling upon the name of the Lord is no evidence of anything until you bring forth works that back it up and show it to be sincere. But Paul wasn't going to deal with that right there in Romans 10 because he's contrasting the work of the law of Moses with the simplicity of the gospel of Christ where Jesus did it all, and we just believe and add good works to assure ourselves. We don't change in heaven. That's been established from the foundation of the world. One more verse, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. Remember, these poor Galatians had been sucked in to the vortex of the, of the heresy of Jewish legalism. And they, they were adding circumcision and the law of Moses to Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And Paul said, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. God doesn't care, and the work of Christ on the cross doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. The only thing that really matters is for you to identify with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is faith, which worketh by love. Out of the right motive, not like the law of Moses, which was, do and live, we live and love and do. Because we live first, and then we do. But faith, which worketh by love. This little decisional regeneration that's going to go on today in countless places is totally worthless when seen in the light of Scripture. O oh Lord, help us this day to believe on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to add those good works that are pleasing in thy sight, not to think that we can stand in our own righteousness before Thee, nor get our name in the book of life by our goodness, but that we might make our calling and election sure, Amen. and that we might bring honor and glory to Your name by men seeing our good works and glorifying our Father which is in heaven. And then, then our faith can be fulfilled by having the works to back it up. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.